Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Packed my bags last night, free flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerd App Podcast. I'm way too excited about this week, Greta. <laughs> this is pretty much the most exciting thing ever, Trisha. We have for you, Nerd App listeners, this week a conversation with Colonel Chris Hadfield. Even if you're not a space nerd, I bet you've heard a little of this on YouTube. This is Major Tom to ground control. I've left forevermore. And I'm floating in a most peculiar way. And the stars look very different today. For here am I sitting in a tin This is actually how I was first introduced to the work of Colonel Hadfield, and it was super exciting. This is him singing. This is him playing. It's hilarious and awesome. Chris Hadfield isn't the first person to tweet from space. That actually happened with some NASA astronauts a few years before, but he changed the game for how the public gets to interact with the International Space Station by interacting with the public on pretty much a daily basis via Twitter and by sending back videos and even music videos in the case of Space Oddity, which was David Bowie approved, by the way. Also, no spoilers, but turns out he's really good at quick math and offers excellent homework. Hadfield's book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, distills his 21 years of experience as an astronaut and gives some useful life lessons For those of us who may not get a chance to go to space but have to overcome fears or think through difficult situations or understand how to multitask in much lower stakes environments than he had to in space. (laughs) Here's our conversation with Colonel Chris Hadfield. We've never talked to someone who's been in space before or who's on money before, so we're counting this as a twofer on the NerdApp podcast (laughs) because you're on the $5 bill in Canada, which is pretty amazingly cool. It is bizarre, yeah. It's humbling. I'm on postage stamps and uh, coins and now the $5 bill. Although it doesn't show my mustache. There were two other Canadian spacewalkers, but my mom is convinced that is me on the $5 bill. (laughs) So, yes. I imagine that it's useful in any situation where you want someone to believe in your authority. You can just pull a $5 bill out of your wallet dramatically and say, really, son, you're not going to listen to me? I'm on money. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, yeah, I have an airport named after me as well. And once when I was just north of Chicago, I was trying to rent an airplane and the gentleman wanted proof of who I was. So I pulled actually out the, the main navigation chart for North America and my name's on it. So, <laughs> so that, that helped as well. It's nice to have some sort of silly Trump card. Yeah, I would say that's more legitimate than a silly Trump card, sir. <laughs> 
I suppose, yeah. Yeah, I try not to bring it up too often. It's embarrassing. Before we were speaking with you, Tricia said, this is like speaking to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> uh, I have the mustache where he had the beard. But otherwise, yeah, probably a reason. You got the fiber. That's a good bill to have. <laughs> yeah. I also have to say I admire very much the mustache pride. I think it's very important. My wife prefers how I look with a mustache, and I started growing it on my 18th birthday. And now, of course, with Movember, I've been a big proponent of that and the raising money for men's health and prostate cancer and, and such. So it's kind of a nice tie-in. There's just no reason to shave it off. I'm not trying to be somebody else. It's just what I look like. So I'm happy to keep it. You've said that you've wanted to be an astronaut since you were nine. And we were wondering what initially prompted your interest in space. I decided to become an astronaut when I was nine years old. A conscious decision. That's what I want to do. But then recognizing that the difference between wanting something and actually doing it meant I was going to have to turn myself into an astronaut. That's the big difference. How do you turn yourself into something that you're dreaming about or that is in the distance? And what kicked off the whole desire in me, which is probably one of the best gifts you can get as a kid, is a shining example of the barely possible. And in my case, it was Neil and Buzz walking on the moon when I was nine years old. To see something that had been impossible, never before done in human history, actually happen before my very eyes. And then to be able to walk out with my naked eyes and look up at the moon that night. And to think that those guys, not only had they landed on the moon and walked in the moon, but now they were asleep on the moon. It's almost like disrespectful. It's like, ha, take that, Moon. That's how good we are. We can come up here and go to sleep. <laughs> and to me, that was hugely enabling as a nine-year-old kid to think that we could do something that had been impossible throughout the history of our species up until then. And to do it not because we had to, but more importantly, because we just barely could. That was a real turning point of realization and one that gave me uh, the optimism and the confidence that maybe I could turn myself into something like that eventually. I wonder if there were any sci-fi influences that helped you along the way as a kid. Were you a Shatner as Captain Kirk guy? Were you a Doctor Who guy? Did that play into your fantasy as a kid of what space might be like? Sure. I read some of the older science fiction, Edgar Rice Burroughs and uh, Jules Verne stuff. That was really interesting. And then Arthur C. Clarke and Heinlein. And then on media, I watched 2001 Clark's book brought to life in Kubrick's movie, which that was when I was about eight or seven or something. So that was fascinating to look at and think about. And then to watch Star Trek come out. When I watched Star Trek, it was first run. It wasn't reruns. It was with Kirk and McCoy and Spock and such. That was all brand new. That was all science fiction, all of that mind-expanding, thoughtful stuff. But if importantly, it was underpinned by science fact of the race to the moon, of the Gemini program, and then the Apollo program, and then the guys actually walking on the moon. And to have all of that happening simultaneously was immensely motivating to see that something that was fiction could become fact through human ingenuity and persistence and optimism. And it sort of set the tone for everything I've done since. So much of the general public's understanding of space and science comes naturally through pop culture. And whether it's sci-fi or a show like The Big Bang Theory, there's all different examples of how science gets portrayed in media. And you sort of went straight to the source by using social media to give people a different view of what an astronaut and what a scientist is doing all day long that was really stunning. Do you think that that has sort of forever changed the game for the program? Are they always going to be thinking in those terms from now on? 
The bigger the program, the more it resembles a gigantic ball rolling downhill. And therefore, the more difficult it is to either deflect it or to make something stick to it. And you need that type of momentum for a big program. If you're going to build space stations and space shuttles, you need to have a great big program. But they pay a price in lack of flexibility and lack of rapid ability to change. And so when you do get the opportunity, and I served as an astronaut for 21 years, so I leaned on the direction of the big rolling ball for a long time. And I was so lucky at the end of that 21 years to have the opportunity to command what is, in effect, the world spaceship and just have time up there to spend five months up on the space station with a new technology that nobody really knew what to do with, which was the connectivity of the station and social media. It was basically a bunch of doors open that nobody had figured out what to do with. And so the reaction was huge. The uh, the number of people that were involved, the number of people following me on the various social media sites, but also for the Canadian Space Agency and for NASA and for Roscosmos, the Russian Space Agency, they could see not only that there was people looking at what I was doing, but if you go to the NASA science websites, there was a marked change in the number of people that were following the core business of what NASA does, the science sites, the, like a, a doubling of the slope of the curve of number of people following it. And so they could see that this is not how they've been doing business. This is not what they were planning, but this is really good for business. And so they support it. And I know that the new astronaut class that they've just hired, in fact, there was a social media component to their selection process and to how they're being trained. And it's a slow reacting thing. We're not some agile little group of eight people who could change the whole company policy in a day. But at the same time, NASA's motivations are altruistic, and NASA attracts brilliant, hardworking people. And so they're looking for ways to do things right. Sometimes it just takes a little while. To their credit, they let me do all those things. Hopefully, some of them will continue to have impacts uh, downstream as well with what the other astronauts are doing and how NASA does business in general. So to what extent was there resistance initially to the idea of doing some of the social media outreach that you did while you were out there? I worked at NASA long enough that I saw some big changes over time. I worked in mission control, in fact, in the old historic mission control back in the 90s, mid-90s. And we wanted to control every bit of information that went up to the space station and back or up to the space shuttle and back. We didn't want you know, uh, the crew on board to hear information from a bunch of different sources because mission control has the biggest picture and you don't want the crew maybe pursuing some action based on something they heard, whatever, through the Internet or they got from an email or they got through a private phone call or something. There's a big resistance to change with good reason. But from when I first started being a Capcom and flying in space, where every little bit of information you got on the space station or the space shuttle was given to you through mission control to now... Gosh, you can go research on Google and you can phone anybody in the world and you can email with them and you can read the news every morning. It's a very different, wide open information gathering and um, sharing environment. Very different in the time I've seen. But you want to do it incrementally. You want to prove that this is not going to degrade operations. So caution is the right way to go when you're in exploration. And to NASA's credit, they've done all those things. They're the ones who put the Internet on the space station. And now they're both cautiously dealing with the changes, but at the same time, seeing the changes and reaping the benefits. So what's it like doing a job that's 95% preparation and 5% game time? Boy, I don't think it's 5%. Maybe that math does work out. I was an astronaut for 21 years, and I was in space for half a year. So 
I guess that's two and a half percent. The key to that is you need to measure your joy and your success not by the things that only happen two and a half or five percent of the time. You need to measure your joy and success by the stuff that's happening 95 or 97 and a half percent of the time. It'd be like saying all food is terrible except once in a while I get to have chocolate ice cream, but everything else is awful. You know, I like chocolate ice cream, but boy, there's a lot of other great stuff out there and the whole joy of preparing and savoring the rest of the food that doesn't diminish the joy of the chocolate ice cream itself. And I kind of view everything that way. I worked in mission control for 25 shuttle flights. I was NASA's director of operations in Russia. I had a lot of opportunity to influence space policy. I worked with countless families as their family escort and their extended family escort during shuttle launches and landings and space station crews. I was intrinsically involved in the World Space Program for a long time. And it's a wonderful, challenging, interesting business with all sorts of reasons to celebrate and be joyful. And I think you can look at anything that way. You can wait for something magnificent and huge to happen every decade and celebrate that. Or you can kind of have a look at just how great things are today. Expectation management. Um, Celebration management. Yeah, I like that better, Uh, too. (laughs) What what, what am I going to celebrate? You know, shoot, there's lots of good stuff happened today. There's fun stuff, and you're meeting people, and it's really where you set your threshold of joy or threshold of accomplishment. I mean, Greta, I was the only girl in Rocket Club in eighth grade, and today I'm talking to an astronaut. I'm pretty excited about today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but what you did in grade eight in Rocket Club, I bet you that was pretty cool, too, and something that you could put together with your own hands that could do something that is pretty remarkable, go hundreds or thousands of feet in the air and to learn all those things. It just depends on how much you allow yourself to enjoy what you're doing. I did often come home sticky with Rocket Glue. (laughs) One thing that we like to ask our guests to do is to give homework to our Nerd Out listeners because nerds are the kids who asked for a little extra homework maybe once or twice in their lives. And we're giving us homework, of course, that everyone go get a copy of An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. And this is your opportunity to assign anything you'd like as a pairing. I think in parallel, I don't spend a lot of time looking backwards. And when I wrote An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, it was to try and glean out of 21 years as an astronaut what is useful for people. It's interesting stories flying in space, but what is useful out of this? And so the only reason I look backwards is to see what skills and platform that gave me so that now I can try and do something useful in moving forward. And I think what I would like people to look towards is what is the next engine technology. And if you really want to do some homework, have a look at what are the next ways that we are going to push through the atmosphere. And I think this next launch, which is just coming up in three days, I think, with SpaceX, that rocket has some really cool new ideas with legs. This rocket has legs. and That's a really important thing. But also to look at the other propulsion methods, what Ad Astra is doing with an ion propulsion rocket, the Vasimir engine, and all those other ideas to think about what is going to take us from propellers to jets or from balloons to propellers or from sail to steam? What is that next propulsion technology that's going to allow us to get beyond Earth orbit, even beyond the moon, and go somewhere else? It's going to take a lot of creative thinking. It's going to be based on a lot of the cool stuff that's been done. It's going on right now, but it's definitely something that's uh, worth doing your homework on. Whether it's an eighth grader in Rocket Club or someone who's long past their original schooling, someone's going to come up with this idea. We should all be tuned in. We're counting on it. An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth is the book. It's a fantastic read. Everyone's going to check that out for their Nerd at Homework as well. Colonel Chris Hadfield, thank you so much for joining us. 
Uh, it was a real pleasure to talk with you both, and uh, there's nothing to stop you this weekend from going out and launching another rocket. you got to go give it another try. It's- I think you're right. All right, I'm doing it. I'm taking that as an order. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's going to be a long, long time. The touchdown brings me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a rocket man. Rocket man. Burning out his fuse out. You can find links to more information about that SpaceX launch that's happening in the next few days on nerdappodcast.com and, of course, the YouTube video of Chris Hadfield singing Space Oddity from space. It was so nice. I heard from one of my very grisly Alaskan friends that that video pretty much made him weep, which is just adorable. This is the power of this video. Go watch it. Planet Earth is blue. Heaven is nothing left to do. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. We love reviews. Stars. Throw us some stars of the iTunes variety while you think about how awesome the stars of the real star variety are. Oh, well done. Segway. <laughs> Thanks to our home stations, WBEZ and WCQS. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Jet propulsion. I can't believe we talked to an astronaut. I'm so excited. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.